How much shorter do you think a book would be if you had a third kid? No, it would be like it would be like three chapters. <laughs> like, <laughs> like don't throw them off anything. It's like I don't know. Welcome to Thirty Thousand Leagues. This is David Yoakum. Today we're going to be talking about how to raise a three-year-old. For those of you that have had kids, you know that this is a space where there are tons of questions that you have about what to do, what not to do. It's also the sort of space where everybody has an opinion and myths are floating all around. But what's the real science behind things like how to discipline a kid? When's the right time to potty change? Should you be doing these or those types of medical treatments? We're joined today by Emily Oster to dive into all of this. Emily, who's a good friend, but also a professor of economics at Brown University, is also the author of two great books that you should read if you haven't yet. The first is Expecting Better, which she wrote a couple years ago about the science behind pregnancy. But then more recently in our topic for today, Crib Sheet, which is about the science behind the first three years of life. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Welcome to the 30,000 Leagues podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So why, why write this book? So... You know, I think I wrote this book in some sense because I wrote the, the, the first book. And so really, you could sort of back up the question. So I have an earlier book about pregnancy. And in some ways, I wrote them both because I felt like the market did not have a book for the the kind of way I wanted to think about my pregnancy and parenting. And, you know, I like to think about data and, and decisions and try to, to make these kind of choices in a way that is informed by data and also sort of thinks pretty carefully about the the costs and benefits of of the different choices and when I when I got pregnant and then when I later started a parent I found that most of the literature and most of the way that this was approached was not with that kind of lens and so I sort of did a lot of that work myself and then that subsequently turned into the books so you do cover a f- fair amount of ground in this book I don't know if I like exactly counted it but something like I don't know, 70, 75 different topics from big things like napping and discipline to potty training to more specific things like jaundice and eye antibiotics and everything in between. How did you actually decide which ones to focus on? So I think some of them, it was sort of clear that we needed to include them. So like, you're not going to write a book like this that doesn't have breastfeeding and sleep and that kind of that kind of stuff. And then I did a lot of, how do you describe it, like market research, basically asking people what are the key things that you would want to see covered. And not all of those made it in because sometimes there was just no data or sometimes the question was like so specific, it was like too specific. But I tried to to be pretty broad about what I put in. And, you know, some of it comes also out of my own, like my own experiences. And also in light of my own experiences, trying to sort out, you know, there were like the things that I cared about with both kids, right? Sort of saying like with Penelope, there were like a million questions. I had like a so many tiny questions all the time. I could read 300 topics, you know, I was narrowing down. Okay. Like what were the things that still came up with, with Finn? And then saying, maybe those are the things that need to be in the book. How much shorter do you think a book would be if you had a third kid? No, it would be like it would be like three chapters. <laughs> like, <laughs> like don't throw them off anything. It's like I don't know. So I do want to ask about some of the particular topics, but before I do, just kind of step it back. It's surprising to me how little it seems like we know, or in another direction, just how many different weird anecdotes and pieces of advice that are floating around, or even just. For me, and I imagine it's probably pretty common, like once you have kids, just in general, how unprepared and uninformed 
one seems. Yes. Given how important this is in our society, yes. like what? Why? Why don't we do more to research, talk about, and train people on how right. to raise kids? So I think there's like a few answers. So one is that I think it's very hard to study kids and the and particularly the impacts of parenting on kids' outcomes, because no one really wants to be in that study, right? The study where it's like you're like we're going to randomize how you parent and then we're going to see how your kid does like you probably don't want to be in that that study and so we're often left with sort of comparing kids with one treatment to kids with another treatment i think that's you know that's sort of inherently inherently limited i think there's there's more to it than that in the sense that like there are things where they just seem to as you parent like you start to uh, conclude things are working or kind of develop your own mythology of like what is a good thing to do in your parenting. And, I, and I, I do think that's probably partly reflects the fact that there are many good ways to parent. And a lot of these individual choices you make don't matter too much. Of course, once you've made them, you don't want to be like, oh, well, who cares? That choice wasn't important. So you want to like attribute some good outcome to some some choices that you made. And so I think that that then causes those to get kind of more weight and, you know, causes us to ascribe causality in places where it is not. And I don't remember actually getting like a parenting class or anything in high school. About the closest I remember was carrying around the little... The eggs or the baby. I had like a, I had a bag of flour. Right, bag of flour, ours, yes. Which they also like put little pants and stuff around, which right. seemed excessive yeah. to me. It was still a bag of flour. But like nowadays, is it more common to actually teach parenting? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, you can take classes on like how to breastfeed or how to, you know, like sort of basic, like mechanical aspects of early parenting. And it is true that in some like schools, one of the things that they, they do is they do some parenting classes for, you know, teen moms. And so I think that there's, there's some of those, but if, you know, like are all of our friends taking some parenting class that like you and I missed? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you think there should be like a parenting 101 that's a... You know, your senior year when you're taking financial literacy, you like also like <laughs> also get a parenting 101. I'm not sure. I don't. Th I mean, I think it's so hard to like teach outside of context, right? It's like even things like how do you bathe your baby? Like you're not going to teach that with a doll, you know, because the doll is not like trying to trying to like flail out and screaming at you. Or and so I think it would be hard to teach people parenting because some of the things that are most challenging, some of the hardest parts are like, it's hard to even describe what it is like when you really want to do the right thing. Your three-year-old is like screaming at you and like will not, you know, put their shoes on, leave the house. You actually have to leave the house right now because the other kid needs to be picked up at their activity and the activity is going to close. And your kid just like is lying on the floor, like grabbing the door handle and you're prying their fingers off. Like the, what, like, what is the class? You know, what are you going to like, what are you supposed to do then? And where's the class is like the right thing to do in that moment is like, and there's no right, you know, there's no right thing. And so I think that that makes it hard to give people very specific parenting classes. Do you remember or have like a first parenting conundrum or thing that baffled you just in your own experience? Like the first thing? Yeah. You know, I think the, the first, I mean, the first thing I remember with Penelope was sort of when we got home from the hospital, just being like, I don't know what to do with it. Like, I, I feel like I should be doing things. You know, we got in the house and it's like, okay, like, what do we, 
like what are we supposed to do you know i'm a person who's used to being like okay here are like some things to check off you know what are we gonna but it was just like i don't know what i'm supposed to do with the baby like what kind of activities does it need to be engaged in it's like there don't need any activities right then and then there was sort of very early on this issue with my mother and the mittens where like she had they had told us at the hospital to put mittens on the baby so she didn't scratch her face and then my mom came and she said, what are, you know, what are you doing with those mittens? I was like, oh, they have them on, scratching the face. And she was like, well, if you, if you leave those mittens on, she'll never learn to use her hands. And I was like, oh. Like, and I remember like being very, like finding this to be like a high level of concern. Like this is something I should spend some time on. Let me think carefully about like the, you know, and that, I mean, think for me, that's part of that, like illustrates like what it is like to be a first time parent for the first three weeks. You're just like, everything is like, wow. Another opportunity to mess my kid up. I guess I already ruined her. She's never going to use her hands. <laughs> I shouldn't have left the mittens on. And you actually, like, found a mitten paper. Yeah, and you? I even looked up. I found a mitten paper, a paper about mitten injuries. And, you know, it turns out there is no evidence wh whether it helps them use their hands or not. But one baby was once injured by a too tight mitten. Too tight mittens. <laughs> actually, before we even got home, I just thought it was crazy that people were letting us... Take, take the baby. Child I know. Out. All they do is they check the car seat. It's like, why don't you check anything else? I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I have no idea. The other, the other thing that baffled me is the amount of data that they wanted me to collect on poops and peas. Why do we do this? Yeah. So there is this sort of. It is a good idea to suggest that people basically pay attention to whether their kid is pooping and peeing, just because that can be a signal of dehydration. You know, if your kid, or that they're not getting it, like that they're not getting nutrients, like particularly if you're breastfeeding, it can be hard to tell if your milk is in, it can be hard to tell if the kid's eating, like, you know, so I think that, that what started as a kind of general advice, like, hey, it's a good idea if your kid's peeing, like you might just like make sure to, to remember, sort of morphed into like, make sure you write down when they're pooping and peeing. And I, I think that that morphing is partly just the morphing in the parents' minds. You know, like we wrote down every time and there was a dirty diaper, every time we peed, exactly how many minutes, you know, she was nursing on each side, like we gave her formula, exactly how many ounces, you know, we had this like whole complicated spreadsheet. And we showed the doctor, she was basically like, I just asked you to write down if she ever peed. You know, I was just like looking, did she pee a couple times every, you know, it was clear we had like turned this, this sort of not terrible advice into this like insane, crazy system. And so I don't know, maybe you did the same thing. It did. It dissipated after our yeah. compliance with data collection started to go down. Yeah. After a couple of weeks. So rooming in, the rooming in choice about whether to keep your kid with you right after you've given birth. It's the sort of thing that I imagine people can get pretty passionate or worried about one way or the other. What's the state of the science on this? So, you know, the the idea behind rooming in, which is kind of part, comes as part of this like baby-friendly hospital package. The idea is to, to basically to promote breastfeeding, that if you have the kid with you all the time, like it will, you you know, you'll breastfeed more frequently and that that will like promote a good relationship. I mean, I think the, the evidence on that link is not great. So we don't have a lot of good causal estimates of that. I think there isn't any particularly strong reason to think it does matter for, for breastfeeding success. The, you know, downside that some people have noted is that you're very tired after you give birth and that sometimes, you know, having the baby removed to a nursery for a few hours so the mom can sleep, like that could have some benefits. And this is a, this issue of sleep and 
parents sleeping better shows up in a big way later on in the book when you're just talking about sleep training. And how does sleep training actually work? Let's, let's give a tutorial to our high school kids carrying those flower dolls. So there are actually a bunch of different ways to sleep train. It broadly refers to letting your kid cry until they fall asleep. But, you know, there's there are many pieces of this. So one question is, like, are you trying to achieve just that they go to sleep on their own, or are you trying to achieve that they sleep all the way through the night? So for a small baby, you could do some sleep training with, like, a three-month-old. You, you shouldn't expect them to sleep all the way through the night. So there you're kind of trying to to get them to fall asleep at the beginning of the night, but usually then you would have some plan to like feed them later in the night. And then once you're the question of like, how do you do this? There's the, what's called extinction, which is the method. Good, solid word choice. Good solid word choice That's for that. what I want to think of with my <laughs> small infant. Where you basically, in all of these cases, you kind of do whatever is the bedtime routine. You like feed them, you read them a book, whatever it is, you like put them down in their, in their crib, you give them a big smile. In the extinction case, you close the door and that's it, you don't come back at all. Then there's the checking, the checking method where every few minutes you come back to like pat the baby, but you don't pick them up. And then actually there are some versions of this where you just stay in the room while they cry, but you don't do anything. These all work about the same. I think the question is just like, what can you take? Basically, like what is your, what are you going to be able to follow through on? Because it's going to work a lot better if you can follow through. Should you sleep train? Should you not? The reason I think people are sometimes reluctant to do this, one is that it is actually very hard because it's very hard to listen to your kid cry. The other thing is that people will tell you, some people will tell you, that it will cause your kid to have emotional problems later and that they will be like unable to form adult attachments and have all kinds of, you know, emotional problems because you are you are doing this. And so so what I sort of talk about in the book is, you know, first, like the question of is this, does this work? Like is, you know, if you do this and it's unpleasant, like is it is it worth it? And the answer is like it does work on average. I mean, it doesn't work the same for every baby, but on average after sleep training, kids will sleep better and their parents will sleep better and actually has you know, good effects on maternal depression, on marital satisfaction. So there are a bunch of reasons from the overall functioning of the family that that's actually could be a good idea. On the flip side, there's just no evidence either in the short or long term that there are any negative effects on kids. And that comes from, you know, reasonably good randomized data, which looks at kids, you know, right after you do this or even a few years later. And so I, I think that, that that is reassuring. Does that mean everybody should do this? No, I don't think it's for, it's not going to be for everybody. But of course, it's the kind of choice that you want to come to on your own, or at least be comfortable with on your own. And so I, I sort of see that tension, but I will say that we, we did it. And I think it was an important thing for our family functioning. On the flip side of the stress of listening to your kids scream and wail and cry, which can be very hard, there's another oscillating of like too quiet and fears of things like SIDS popping up out of nowhere. What is, what is SIDS? So SIDS it refers to sudden infant death syndrome, and it is used often as a catch-all for circumstances in which an infant who is otherwise you know, previously healthy dies unexpectedly. I think there's a push now to sort of recategorize a broader class of things as sudden unexplained infant death rather than SIDS because that captures suffocation and some other, it's actually hard to, hard to code this, but generally that's what it refers to. How common is it? It is the leading cause of death after prematurity uh, in in the U.S. So I want to say something like one death per thousand, a half a death per per thousand. Like two thousand or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So it depends a little bit on the exactly how you're defining it. But it is it is the leading cause of of death in the first year outside of prematurity. But also still. Also rare. still very rare. I mean, maybe yes. to put it in the context of other risk 
Right. I mean, so take. so generally, it's like you know very very rare. I mean, like this is like infant mortality is not that common. Immortality of full-term infants is like blessedly quite rare, and so this is a this ends up being a large share of that, but it is still a small risk. Are there things that can be done to reduce the risk? Yeah. So so this is the focus of a lot of advice that parents get about sleep, and some of that some of these pieces I think are more important than others. So one, which is clearly very important, is sleeping on the back. So infants who sleep on their back are much less, much at much lower risk than infants who sleep on their stomach. And that's why you have this back to sleep campaign and all of these kind of sleeping outfits for kids, which say sleep, sleep on your back. The other piece of advice this is linked to is the idea of not co-sleeping, of not sleeping in the bed with the, with the parents. I spend a lot of time on that in, in the book because I think this is a place that parents this is an area that people find very challenging for a bunch of reasons. So, you know, one is that actually you will often get advice suggesting that sleeping with your kid is great. So there's like whole philosophies of parenting about how the most important thing you can do to stay attached to your kids is have them in the bed with you. And like that's, we've been doing that for millions of years and like that's the natural way to sleep. And then on the other side, you get very, very harsh rhetoric about how this is dangerous. I mean, a few years ago, there was a, an ad campaign about like against co-sleeping, which featured a baby with a knife. Like there was like the picture on the ad campaign was a baby in a bed with a giant kitchen knife. And it was like the, it basically was like, this is like co-sleeping with your baby is like having it sleep with a knife. So I think that, that that is very scary. That is also not helpful for parents in making choices, particularly because again, for a lot of parents, like for some babies this is like the only way that they'll sleep. And so parents are sort of like, my choice is to never sleep again ever, or to put my baby to sleep with a knife. Like this doesn't feel like a, like, I just don't feel equipped to be able to make any choice here. Yeah. And it doesn't, and it doesn't capture the increase in risk in a way right. that it's helpful. Yeah. Do you so, really, I, I wrote it down. What they, do you remember what the increase? Yeah. So I, so I spent, so in, so in the book, I think that one thing to note is that it's, it actually matters tremendously how you do this. And so if you are going to co-sleep, it's important not to smoke, not to be drinking heavily, not to have a huge amount of blankets everywhere. And, you know, if you do this in the safest way possible, there is some in risk and risk, but it's very small. It's like 0.14 deaths in a thousand. So significantly smaller than the risk of putting your kid in the car, for example. I think we really miss an opportunity to help parents make good choices when we don't give them those numbers and explain like, yeah, the safest way to sleep is with the baby in its own crib, but it, this isn't the largest risk. You know, they're, they're reasonable people could make the choice to do this. Breastfeeding versus bottles. How should we venture into this? So, I mean, I think that... The place I, I always want to start with this is to say, you know, I think we've gotten into, into a position where we want to encourage more women to breastfeed because the U.S. has fairly low breastfeeding rates, which I think is a perfectly fine goal. But the way we seem to be going about this is through promotion. So just if we tell people that it's important enough, they will just make it work, even if it is very hard. And so all of our focus is on just like listing benefits of why breastfeeding is so important. And, you know, it's like, it's like, it's going to give you, you know, your kid's going to be smarter. They're going to be thinner. They're not going to have any illnesses. You're going to be popular. You know, you'll grow horns. I mean, I don't know, like just like crazy stuff. <laughs> I like right? that horns was on your, pos- <laughs> like, your positive I don't side know everything. <laughs> like, yeah. You be you. You be you. <laughs> like, listen, that would be awesome. And I think that that approach contributes to a feeling of a lot of unhappiness if it doesn't work. You know, breastfeeding doesn't work for everyone. It is not fun for everybody. Not everybody likes it. 
some people can't do it. And then people end up feeling really like, like shamed. And so when I went in the data here, you know, I, the answer, I think the answer is people say breast is best. Like, yeah, I think breast is best, but you know, not by that much. So it seems to have some good impacts on digestion for the baby in the first year, some effects on rashes, maybe some effects on ear infections, actually some long-term effects for mom in terms of breast cancer reduction. But a lot of these claims about long-term effects for kids around obesity or IQ or other illnesses, they just don't seem to be supported in the best data. And I think that kind of ramps down our breast is best messages. Like it's best, it's, it's best, it's a, it's a bit best a bit best basically but on the flip side you know i think it is it, a lot of people want to do this like it can be very nice a lot of people really like it and so i th i think we need to shift a little bit into like support rather than promotion you know sort of like we don't need to we can tell people the truth which is like yeah this is like a good thing could be convenient you might like it it has some of these benefits and then go into like, okay, how can we help this? How can we help you make this work for you? Like, what are the issues that you're having? How can we support women who want to, to do this without like using just like shame as a stick? And just to kind of run through it a little bit, are there any links with later intelligence or any of those no, kind of long-term ones? there are no ones? links. I mean, there are certainly correlations in the data between those when we look at data where we think that's a more plausibly causal association, we do not see those links. Why do you have skepticisms about the correlations? So I think the correlations are often seem to be driven by differences across moms and who chooses to breastfeed and, and chooses not to. I mean, one, one paper I like a lot sort of tries to really elucidate this. And so they start by just comparing kids who are breastfed to kids who are not. And they see like a really big, you know, like a seven IQ point difference. Then they put in some controls for like, you know, the mom's education income and you're kind of down to like one and a half points. Then you put in some controls, like additional controls for mom's IQ. You're down to a half a point, which is like pretty different from seven points. Then you actually compare siblings. So you hold constant, not only mom's IQ and education income, but also like literally who she is. And then you're down to 0.02 points. So that feels to me like that really illustrates, like since most of the studies look like either very few controls or no controls, then it's like you can see why other studies show that and why, why the best studies would, would not. Do you need to pump and dump if you drink? You don't need to pump and dump. So pump and dump, so when you're breastfeeding, if you're drinking, people will sometimes tell you you have to, you have to pump and then throw the milk away. So there's like a few things to say about that. First of all, alcohol doesn't accumulate in the milk like that. So the milk, at, when it comes out, has has the concentration that's like reflective of your blood al blood alcohol level. And so if you wait, then you can just nurse. So that's like one one point. But also the the level of alcohol in your milk is extremely low relative to what would be risky. And so you know people have done these calculations where it's like. It's like, even if you had like four shots of tequila and then you nursed at like the highest amount of drunkness, it still would be a very, like basically a safe level of alcohol in your milk. Like you shouldn't do that because that is really, it's really hard to parent if you've had short four shots of tequila. But it means like if people are like, well, I can't have a beer because I'm, I'm going to breastfeed. Like that's not, that is not a concern. So I want to keep pushing on in life. We're out of the we're out of the hospital, kids sleeping, we're swaddling them, we're sleep training them. Food and allergies. This is another place where there is all kinds of rules you hear about eat peanuts or not, honey or not. Talk to me about peanuts. Yeah, so peanuts are super interesting. So when I, my older one is older than yours, and when she was born, 
in 2011, we got the advice to like avoid peanuts. That basically you're, you should not give your kid peanuts into their year or two because they could have an allergy. And like, if you wait, then like they won't have an allergy or it's good to wait for some other reason. And then, you know, it's but kind of between my kids, I think, this study came out that suggested, that showed using like quite a compelling randomized trial that actually exposing kids to peanuts early is hugely beneficial in preventing allergies. So the advice to wait is like really terrible advice. It's not just neutral, it's actually actively bad. And unlike in many of the kinds of things we look at in this book, it's like a really large effect. There's like a- Three versus 17%. Exactly, there's like, like a it's huge massive. reduction in the, in the risk of allergies as a result of, of exposing kids to peanuts early. And this does seem to extend to other common allergens like eggs or wheat or milk, that basically they should be exposed to those as, as early as possible after, you know, four months, basically. And that that has, you know, not all allergies will be prevented by that, but a lot of them will. So where did that idea come from? That you should avoid them? Yeah. I, I think it's hard to know. I'm not sure that there was any, I think the idea is, I think it's not so much that they thought that, that delaying would prevent the development of an allergy, but just that people thought if you might be allergic, you would rather like have that allergy manifest later because maybe it would be like less dangerous to have the first allergic reaction with a one-year-old. So I'm not sure why we got into that, into that recommendation in, in the first place, but it was clearly pretty damaging. And is there a particular like window in time you need to... So the, you know, the, the study started kids at four months. Um, I think it depends a little bit like how high risk your kid is. It's even more, a little complicated because it's basically like you, it's not enough to just expose them. You have to kind of keep exposing them. So it's not like you want to just give them peanuts once you want to sort of give them peanuts with some regularity. So there's actually some companies that do, that do this now. They have these like powders that have peanuts and eggs and wheat and whatever in them. And you kind of like dissolve them in formula or breast milk. And so that's, I don't know, that's something that probably is unnecessary, but I think could, could help parents who are sort of want to do this, but are struggling with exactly how. You think 30 years from now, we'll be able to have peanuts on the airplane again. Right. I mean, I hope so. Or at least at your kid's school. You know, I do, I actually, I will say between my daughter, in my daughter's class, there are some peanut allergies and in my son's class, there are no peanut allergies. Mm -hmm. Still, we can't bring peanuts to school because there's peanuts allergies in other parts of the school. So I think we're gonna have to like, you know, but it seems like, it seems like a good movement. Yeah. I'd get behind that. Yeah. Uh, Honey. And, botul- and causing botulism. So this is like another thing where, you know, you're not supposed to give your kid this because of something about botulism. I think it, it turns out that it probably isn't the, the source. So botulism is a thing that it's like a very rare thing that infants can get that can sort of paralyze them for a short time. I'm sure it's terrifying. It is treatable and it does sort of eventually like, I mean, like in a few, it's treatable in like a few weeks or a couple weeks, although the kid typically has to be in the hospital. I mean, it does, it's not like a great thing you want your kid to have for sure. I think it turns out that the link with honey is probably not, is probably spurious. And so the fact that people are told to avoid honey is probably not necessary. Unlike peanuts, honey is not like a common allergy. So it isn't that we are ruining people's lives by telling them that they can't have honey. Another place where worries can sometimes come in is just wanting to constantly compare like where your kid is in terms of other kids on walking, talking, kind of you name the developmental milestone. How should parents be just thinking about these types of comparisons? So, you know, I think that we probably put too much weight on these given how important they turn out to be later, which is not especially important, you know, particularly around physical milestones, kids with sort of normally developing kids 
learn to walk at very different ages so that you know your kid can walk at seven months they can walk at 15 months these are both like totally normal ages to walk at and so i think but it is like he sort of gets to be a thing that we that we think about and i think part of the advice would just be sort of like try to like recognize that there's a range of of normal and most of these things are not predictive of later of later success right so it's one thing to say there's a range of normal there's the other thing where you're like well i'm worried if my kid doesn't learn to walk like are they going to be picked last on the kickball team? And like my kids probably will be picked last on the kickball team, but I don't think it's because they learned to, you know, it's not because they learned to walk late. It's, <laughs> it's just genetics, it's the genes. And so these things just don't correlate much with, with later stuff. And even, you know, talking, it's true that kids who talk very late and very slowly in a sort of like very, very late, you know, on average, that, that does correlate with slightly worse performance in school later, but the importance of that correlation is very small. So like the amount of the variation in later school performance that's explained by this is really, really tiny. And even the, like looking at the middle of the distribution, it might be just much, still just might be much more spread than people have an intuition on yes. if they're thinking like, oh, it's like you start to walk around 10 or 11 months right. is a different intuition than like, no, like anywhere between right. eight and... 17 months. Yeah. Is, and then is crawling, totally... it's sort of like some kids never crawl. They just like never crawl. You were like, and you're sort of looking for these milestones. Okay, they're going to do this, they're going to do this, and this. Like sometimes kids just like, they, they don't do some of them. That's a real problem for the got to crawl before you walk. Right, expression. exactly. Yes. You to... don't have to do that. To... You could just walk. <laughs> you don't really you remember that for the next motivational yeah. talk yeah, we exactly. need to give. You have to... Actually, I'd be like, actually, that's people love that in the motivational. They're like, you know, you have to crawl. Actually, yeah. it turns out not everybody does that. Yep. Vaccination. This is one where I'm actually everybody should get vaccinated. Yeah, everyone should get vaccinated. I'm curious the and I think everyone has a sense that there's like some controversy that happened back here. But for those who haven't heard about kind of the the genesis Mm -hmm. of where concerns about, for instance, MMR, MMR vaccines and autism link come from. Talk a little yeah. bit about Andrew Wakefield and just like the depths of the fraud here is I think yeah. often gets missed. So the particular issue of autism and MMR kind of comes initially from this paper that this guy Andrew Wakefield published in The Lancet in say like the like the late in like the nineties. And you know, basically the, the paper is like a case report of twelve kids who were autistic and or at least most of them were autistic and his his kind of claim was that they developed these symptoms right around when they received the MMR vaccine, right after the MMR vaccine, and that, in fact, the vaccine was the cause of these through some mechanism he elucidated around sort of digestion, I think. And so this is really, like, in some sense, I think, responsible for this concern. And that is troubling in a, in a million ways. So one is like, this fact is simply not true. Like we have much larger data sets, data sets with 700,000 kids, not 12 kids, which show that there's just no link. But it turned out that that his data was not just wrong, but fraudulent. He, he made up a lot of the case reports. His sample selection was you know, designed to generate his his conclusions. He was hoping to sue the vaccine manufacturers. Is at least one of the speculative things people have said, and get some and get some money. So you know, there there are reasons to think that his motives were not pure. In addition to the research, just like simply being wrong. You know, the paper was eventually retracted. He lost his license. You know, like various things happened. But I think it's really been hard to argue. It's been hard to totally dismiss this link in people's minds. And that history seems relevant to me in the sense that if you, you know, 
we're not all vaccine experts. Most of us aren't. If you thought that there was, there were a few studies out there getting published in places like Lancet and things like that, even if it was a super minority view, I can understand how that could put some seeds of doubt, understanding that it was outright fraudulent data. Yeah. Seems like an important clarification. Yeah, I agree. Although I will say, you know, since this book has come out, I've had some interactions with people around these issues of vaccines. And I think that these, that these beliefs are very, are very pernicious and are very difficult the arguments have evolved in a way that I think has made it kind of hard to to argue against it. So I've been sort of frustrated with my ability to to kind of reach people around these issues. I don't think I'm alone in that. Even once people understand the data were fraudulent? Yeah. I mean, I you know, and, I've, and you can bring up like, okay, well, what about the study in Denmark yeah. with the 700,000 kids and et cetera? And people are, well, you know, in Denmark, they give the first vaccines at three months and we give them at two months. So I don't really think that evidence is relevant. It's like, that's like, that doesn't make any sense. Like the particular vaccine of concern is given at the same time. Like, this is like, that isn't a thing that makes any sense. But like what, you know, it's hard to argue those points in a productive manner. So kids, they get sick all the time. You said so like six to eight colds a year, about 14 days each, which yeah. led to what I always felt in my gut to be true, but like literally 50% of the winter, they're just, yeah. they're just No, I, I will say I wrote that. My, my editor had me add that section because she was just like, I just need to understand. Like my kids appear to be sick, like about 60% of the time. Could you just tell me if that's normal? And then you kind of do the calculation. And it's like, yep, that's normal. Like, and then probably the rest of the time they'll have a cough. Yeah. Because the cough isn't going to go away until the next cold arrives. <laughs> and if you've got multiple people in your house, yes. the odds of any one person being sick at any given point in time is very high. It's like 100. I feel like the worst is the vomiting sickness. That's like my the thing mm. where your kid comes home at the end of the yep. day and they're like, you know, like Ethan, not to pick on your, but like Ethan vomited at school today and you're like, oh, yep. it's coming. Yep. You know, like, yep. like, what do I have on the calendar in the next few days? Let me clear it out. <laughs> and we, in our household, we roll through person by person. Aaron will oh, get sick too. Yeah. and then Ethan and then Sarah. And then I'm just in the back, just watching it. And the, and the virus is just progressing yeah. worse and worse and worse until it hits me. It's psychologically, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's almost worse than the illness yeah. itself is just I knowing, agree. The waiting, knowing, that, you're knowing that it's coming. Coming any moment. It's, it's so bad. It's torture. Is this, is this another place where similar to exposure to peanuts and honey? Like, do we go too far on all the Lysol and the clean yeah. wipes? And I mean, so I, th I think, you know, that's, this is not like a, that is not a super well understood question. My sense is that, yes, there is some, probably some link between, say, like the increase in autoimmune disorders and like more cleanliness among, you know, kids or just in general in, in the world. I will say that, you know, kids who are in daycare, who get, they get sick more when they're younger, but then less when they're older. So there does seem to be some sense that like some exposure to this at younger ages is going to translate into, you know, getting sick less in like school ages. TV, screens. Should your kid be boxed away from TV? What do we think about this space? You know, this space is, is like an enormous challenge for the data. So I think there's, and for like two reasons. One, you know, the, the basic question of like, 
what kinds of kids are watching TV and more TV, like less, you know, the kinds of comparisons you want to do, like those kids are just really different. And so, you know, trying to learn from that data is hard. We have a little bit of evidence on television from, you know, kind of the introduction of television. So it's like 1950s. So I think you could bring up the caveats. Maybe that's not the same as TV now. That data is pretty encouraging. It basically suggests that TV is not dramatically impacting or not impacting at all kids test scores so so that's kind of encouraging although again the context is pretty different but i think the question that parents have now is much more about you know videos ipads app time like you know and it, i think it's more complicated because it's both like well maybe this is sort of good for them i mean our our data is just not good here it's hard to look to the future like you know, you want to know, like, what is the impact of playing a lot of apps at the age of two on high school graduation? We can't know that because the kids who played apps at two, they haven't graduated from high school yet because this stuff is all really is all really new. And one point you make in the book that seems like it's worth sort of expanding is thinking about this question in terms of what it's displacing, what the kid would be doing yeah. differently, which also, I mean, this is a place where literature on screen time with adult comes in or, yeah. you know, whether it's having a good or a bad effect on you kind of depends on what you would be doing yeah. otherwise. Yeah. And I think there's like, you know, there's a big difference between kind of my kid is like every afternoon instead of like, you know, playing outside, they're playing, you know, video games. That's like different or, you know, having a, like my three-year-old is like getting up in the morning and spending like five hours on, you know, watching TV. That's probably different than, you know, I have my kid watch TV for a half an hour while I take a shower or make dinner or whatever. Right. And I think, you know, a sort of extension of that is like if a lot of these recommendations, like you should never let your kids watch screens, seem to think that the alternative is to like be on the floor, like doing puzzles with them, like be super engaged. But you, you can't really parent in that super, many of us struggle to parent in that super engaged way at all moments. You know, we have other things we're trying to do, like produce food, shower, you know, check our email, do our job occasionally, you know, like sometimes you need a little bit of babysitting. You know, like my kids don't watch a lot of screens, but I will say like, like my husband, we've had like a very, I've had like a very busy few weeks and my husband and I like to go running together and we hadn't like had a chance to do that. And so this, on Sunday morning, he was like, look, why don't we just take the kids and like let them watch TV for a half an hour and like sit them by the, by the track and we'll like run around the track and we'll be able to keep an eye on them and like let them watch TV. And like, you know, it's a half an hour of TV, like, which is going to make both parents like much happier for, for the day. And we did that. And then, you know, we went off and, you know, did some stuff outside and, and whatever. And I think that, you know, that is a sense in which maybe you say like, well, you should, you know, you should have been engaged in every, in every moment. But I think that that was the right choice yeah. at that moment. And I guess where the concern would start to come in would, would be if it's not, you know, a half hour while you're doing a chore or something to kind of reboot yourself, but it slips into, you know, five hours or yeah. it displaces reading to your kid because you've been sold the idea that a screen app can teach your kid right. to read better than you can. Yeah, I think that there is this danger of like, you know, thinking that the TV can teach your kid. Your TV cannot teach your kid to read. That like, we actually have pretty good evidence on that. They cannot teach your kid to read. Your kid can learn things from TV, although, which is also worth keeping in mind. Potty training. Yeah. It's happening later and later now. It says some it stats is. around like used to be around 27 see, months or so. Yeah. Now it's around 36 months or so. Yeah. What's going on? So I don't, I think we don't totally know. So it definitely has gone, the age of potty training has gone up over time. I think the answer is probably that is because people are starting later. So one of the things you can see in the data is like if you start later, it will take longer, but you will 
yeah, sorry, if you start later, it will take a shorter time, although of course you will finish later. And it doesn't really matter too much when your kid learns to use the potty, except that, you know, you might like them to learn, so you could stop changing diapers. But in terms of like other kind of developmental, like is this a marker or some other thing, like it doesn't really matter. I think probably a piece of it is that diapers have improved. So my sense is that the, the quality of diapers that we are experiencing is quite a bit better than the quality of diapers our parents were experiencing. And so, you know, your, your incentive to get the kid out of diapers is different if, like, every time they wear the diaper, they leak all over their clothes and you're doing, like, you know, laundry all the time. Like hand-scrubbing linens and stuff like that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, you know, disposable diapers push you to... And I think the diapers also are much more absorbent. So the kids are not getting the same kind of feedback that they, that they were when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as soon as you pee, like, the pee is gone, like, into the magical diaper materials that they use now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know what those things are made of. I don't know what those things are made of, but they are really... They can absorb anything. Of anything. And there was one method you mentioned, I can't remember what it is, that is just never putting your kid in a diaper and trying to put... Oh, elimination communication. Yes. Did you make this up? Is this a real thing? No, I did not make this up. You gotta, you gotta, Elimination you gotta communication is a method. It's not really a potty training method. I'll say. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an approach where you don't ever put your kid in diapers, like from birth, and then you intuit when they need to use the bathroom. <laughs> you, you intuit when they need to use the bathroom, and then they, they use the bathroom in the, in the toilet from infancy. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's, and there's real people that try to do this? Yeah, this is, a, I mean, people try to do, I mean, I, I don't think it, it's not like super practical if you are planning to, <laughs> it's, not, it's not, if you're planning to use childcare, like most childcare providers don't want to be, don't do this. But you know, if you want to like, you know, you're, yeah, people do this. All right. I'm just going to press like, on or else I might, on, I might just derail on. the whole rest press of the on. podcast here. This is my chance to plug one of my favorite terms for from the book, STR. Stool toiling refusal. It's so good. good right? I wish I had known about STR up. before. Yeah. No, a lot of people say this. Oh, this, yeah, say what it is. I, it, so it's, STR it's a label is, on. Is the is the refers to the fact that a lot of that a lot of kids will refuse to poop in the toilet even after they're potty trained for yep. for peeing. A thing which is turns out like a quarter of the kids experience some pretty substantial version of this, and obviously many more kids. The kids generally don't like to poop in the potty. Like they don't. It's like I think it's like it feels like you're like losing a body part in some way. I don't know. That, that's the theory that I've heard. But the fact is that like kids don't like to do this, and nobody tells you that. This is like in the category of things that like when you're when you're planning to have a kid, nobody's like, by the way, in two and a half years, you're gonna tell them to poop in the potty and then they're gonna not wanna do it. And then it could be like six, eight, ten months where they won't poop in the potty because they refuse to. Just FYI, <laughs> you're gonna be like running home. I mean, with my second kid, I was like, okay, like I think I can get him to do this. But I was like running home in the middle of the day, like from work, because I was the only person he would like try to poop with. And I was like, okay, he's ready. And I was like, run home. And then like have him poop in the little potty and then run back to work. Yeah. I mean, you don't like think about that. When you're, when you're getting pregnant, you don't think about that. But that's yeah. happening for you. STR. STR. So one of the topics on the back end, which again was kind of nice to see that there's some evidence behind, is around the right way to discipline. Mm-hmm. 
How should you discipline? So you shouldn't hit is one thing, but there is some, you know, good evidence around these like positive parenting interventions. So the one I talk about most is one, two, three magic, just cause it's sort of the most familiar thing for a lot of people here, but there's, there are a bunch of versions of this. And the basic idea behind all of these is that when you sort of want to stop bad behaviors, you have a, like a, some kind of counting or warning system and then a defined consequence, like a timeout would be the common one or a loss of a loss of some privilege and that you do this every time. And if you, one of the key things these all emphasize is like not getting angry. So that like doing this in a sort of calm manner and if the kids come to, to expect this, then that can really improve behavior and there's like good evidence, good evidence for that. It really works. And I mean, this is one where I'm surprised where we haven't kind of evolved to have better intuitions about this. I mean, it's it's easy to slip into. I mean, I guess there's one part you just you genuinely get frustrated. Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of people that have the intuition that like the right way to discipline is to you know to pull out pull out the ruler, pull out the belts, the way you toughen yeah. folks up. Yeah. Where do you think that? comes from and why you know, the disconnect. I think part of it is like that was that has been a common method, you know, corporal punishment has been commonly used for a, a long time and you know, people probably remember it as like notable and maybe they think that it changed their their behavior. You know, I don't think that the evidence is too in in support of that. I think also, you know, our instincts about how to to affect other people's behaviors before we have kids for a long time, those instincts have been, have been developed around other adults, right? So like, I, I have an instinct about like how to get you to do things. I mean, this is even putting aside things about like sort of spanking or, but just like in general, like I have an instinct about how to get my spouse to do something like by asking them. And if they don't do them, maybe by yelling at them because like, why didn't you do it? And didn't you listen to me? And, you know, I mean, not that I think we should yell at other adults, but you know, there is a, you are developing instincts around people who are kind of rational and who are able to do it. And when they don't do something, they're doing, it's kind of like on purpose, you know? And with kids, I think to, to the thing you have to recognize is that they are not adults and that a lot of times they're just like experimenting and they're kind of trying to see what happens. I think once you recognize that, it's a bit easier to, to sort of approach this in a more productive manner. So for soon to be new parents giving birth this month or on the horizon, if you're talking to them, what's the kind of advice you would give them as they sort of embark on this this journey? So usually I try to tell people to like relax a little bit more and that, you know, there are a lot of good choices and to try not to obsess about every little thing. That's like the kind of broad message I like to try to, I try to send. Mm-hmm. And tell me, I'm curious if this one resonates for you. I, I found the oscillation between sometimes extreme boredom, mm-hmm. which I feel like doesn't get talked about a lot. And on the other end, like true moments of just joy and transcendence yeah. that would go. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hard to both describe how difficult and also how like wonderful it is, you know, that like to, before you have the kid to explain to somebody like, you know, you don't understand. Yes. You are not going to sleep. You're going to be so tired. Like it's going to be sort of frustrating and a fight with your spouse, but like it's totally worth it. Like would not change it for one second. Yeah. I think that's sometimes like a litmus test for whether a person has kids or not is whether they get excited upon news that somebody is pregnant. Like I remember before I had kids, if somebody told me that it was like, cool, <laughs> yeah, I, right. I, 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 but now it like brings back right. all kinds of 
memories of all kinds of things. And yeah. like, I find myself genuinely excited that someone yeah. else is about no, to No, no, we had, kid. I have a very close friend, just baby, like a few days ago, and I had to like see her in the hospital. I was like, wow, like I remember, you know, I of course, and then I was like, oh, I'm kind of glad that I'm not doing this again. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> there's like, also, yeah, there's also that thought. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 30,000 Leagues. We hope you enjoyed today's deep dive. This episode was hosted by David Joachim and produced by Jessica Davison, Molly Cook, and Mitchell Johnson. Find more conversations on 30,000leagues.com and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep calm and narwhal on. I'm going to make sure that Sarah listens to this episode. This was a this was a point of marital wedge between us because it led to getting the plain Cheerios rather than Honey Nut Cheerios. Well, your kid doesn't eat Honey Nut Cheerios, David. His dad needs Honey Nut Cheerios, <laughs> though. Who eats, okay. the, who eats the plain Cheerios? We do eat the plain Cheerios. Our family, the cereals Have you ever had house, the plain Cheerios? Of course. The cereals in my house are plain Cheerios, the unsweetened wheat squares from oh, get Whole out Foods. Of here. That's right, yeah. My family likes those. Plain Cheerios. Plain Cheerios and unsweetened wheat squares. <laughs> this podcast is going to be the end of our friendship. <laughs>